The great horror in some ways of being a thinker, of being a philosopher, is not that other people don't think, but rather that they don't listen. And it has been a long time since society has listened to reason and evidence. And by that, I really mean Western society. The question of whether England should stay in the European Union or not, the vote that's coming up that's called the Brexit, is a question that at the moment is, there's only pretend answers. The pretend answers are fear-mongering and political correctness, neither of which are answers but are different species of secular religions. The fear-mongering is very clear and very drum-beatingly loud in your brain and very insistent and endless. A GDP is going to fall. Cameron recently said, well, if we leave the European Union, there will be war, isolationism, separation. And uh, this is all nonsense. Uh, nobody has a clue what's going to happen in terms of trade uh, and uh, in terms of the movement of people as a result of leaving the European Union. But one thing is for sure, that those decisions will be made locally rather than in Brussels. And the government which governs least governs best, and the government which governs locally governs most responsively to the people. Uh, you care about your own children, you probably don't care quite as much about the uh, children in Brussels. Uh, and in the same way, the people in Brussels care about themselves. Do they care about you as much in England? Of course not. Uh, that is madness. And the idea that somehow England can't trade with Europe, if it leaves the EU, that's nonsense. You know, China just negotiated a trade deal with the EU, um, but it was negotiated with China's best interest at heart, which is exactly what England needs. The same scare stories were told, if you're old enough, uh, the same scare stories were told about not joining the euro, right, the common currency in Europe. Uh, it's really, really going to be terrible, disaster, and, of course, nothing of the kind came to pass. There is this... Um, horrible, horrifying, human-chewing fantasy that has been going on for about 150 years since the fall of classical liberalism in the 19th century in the West, which is we're just one more layer of bureaucracy away from paradise. And it fundamentally is a communist idea that, that central planning and bureaucrats and government officials can run things and run your life so much better than you can, that they should make the decisions, not you. Uh, and this idea that we're just one regulation, one more statute book, one more layer of bureaucracy away from paradise uh, is madness. And um, another question is, um, is there even an EU to leave? So the European Union is supposed to be uh, a set of rules that are designed to govern um, relations between its member countries. Well, um, is there really such a thing? One of the most important parts of the EU is um, the question of, of deficit financing, right? Because when people like Greece or when countries like Greece lied their way into the EU, without any repercussions, by the way, when they lied their way into the EU, what they did was they get to suck their, or they get to attach their vampiric fangs to the interest rates that Germany's, until recently, relatively responsible government had created. And so they got to borrow at a much lower rate. And that lower rate didn't reflect the risk of lending to uh, the Greeks. And uh, therefore, the Greeks could go crazy spending tons of money. 
And then when the European Central Bank declined to bail them out ad infinitum, then one thing that happened was Greece loosed migrants on Europe. So great job, Goldman Sachs, helping Greece to lie its way into the EU and terrible job, EU, actually enforcing your rules. There was supposed to be small government debt, responsible government spending. There was this thing called the Stability and Growth Pact that was going to make sure, because there are going to be big sanctions, you see, if you break the rules. And uh, the rules have never been enforced. No sanctions have ever been applied. You see, the EU is a way of helping politicians avoid responsibility and consequences, and um, it's, it never gets enforced. So the question is, is it actually a contract if it never gets enforced? No, it's an excuse. Uh, refugees uh, or, or people fleeing war zones or people feeling, uh, fleeing political persecution are supposed to stay in the first country they land in. And um, a significant proportion of these uh, migrants, uh, these uh, what are often economic refugees, go welfare shopping, right? They just roam around until they can find the place with the most welfare benefits. Um, so again, here's a rule which was supposed to keep Europe safe. It's not being enforced. So the question is, is there even a goddamn European Union to leave or is there a bunch of bureaucratic garbage that is designed to avoid accountability for politicians and is never enforced in any way, shape or form? Why would you bother upholding a contract that never gets enforced? Uh, it makes no sense whatsoever. But the most important question with regards to the British exit from the EU, which um, morally, practically, empirically, and philosophically is the equivalent of, let's say, diving off the Titanic into a well-provisioned lifeboat uh, when the Titanic is still only at 30 degrees rather than 80 or 90 degrees and there's some guy falling down to hit his head on a propeller. The EU is expecting 3 million third-world asylum applications by the end of 2017. Now, that's just a little over 18 months away. 3 million, mostly third-world asylum applications by the end of 2017. And that is a complete disaster. If you are in England, and I'm not a fan of the welfare state, but people seem to like it, but if you want to keep your welfare state, obviously more money needs to be going in to the welfare state than is being taken out of it. If you like old age pensions, more money needs to be going into the tax revenues than are being taken out of tax revenues. So if you want your pensions, if you want your health care, if you want your welfare, then you have to limit the number of economically destructive third world migrants who come into your country. They don't speak the language, they have no job skills. Two thirds of the Syrians coming into Europe are illiterate even in their own language. Even in their own language. You think these people are going to contribute to your economy? Of course not. They're going to be massive net drains on your government resources, not to mention just the old age pensions and the welfare. What about your children's education? How many resources get diverted to the endless kids of third world migrants who don't speak English and need massive amounts of resources just to learn that two and two make four? You don't have the right to strip your children of their education. You don't have the right to strip your old age pensioners of their pensions. You don't have a right to destroy the edifice of social security that has been built up over generations. You don't have that right. You don't have the right to end up in a situation where your grandmother might die of starvation because the price of cat food has gone up because you want to not be called a racist and want to do this moral posturing about what a great person you are. You don't have that right. Listen, people, it is a basic philosophical concept of justice and morality and rationality that you cannot destroy 
what you do not own. You cannot destroy what you have not built yourself, eh? If I draw a picture and I don't like it, yeah, I can throw it out. But I can't go to an art gallery and take the works of arts accumulated over generations and destroy them because I don't like them, because they're not mine. Everything that you have inherited, your, your freedoms, your freedom of speech, your freedom of association, your right of voting, the separation of church and state, all that British Protestantism has fought for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, you do not have the right to give that away, to sell that, to destroy it. Because you did not create it. It is not yours. It is something that you hold in trust for those who come after you. All of the glories that were given to you by your forefathers are not yours to give away for the sake of moral posturing and five seconds relief from being called a racist or a bigot or whatever nonsense comes up. When these topics arise in conversation, you don't have that right. You do not own your culture. You do not own your freedoms. They were given to you, handed by the bloody, broken fingers of your elders. And what your responsibility is, is to do what they did to attempt to expand and extend those freedoms, not to destroy them out of a misplaced, paranoid, hysterical, girly woman fear of being criticized according to politically correct religiosity. You do not have that right. It is not even a choice that you have. If you hold money in trust for someone else, you don't get to spend it. Now, people say, of course, well, and I sympathize with this, like I just did something where I said I can't go home again because of the, um, the loss of British culture in the city that I grew up in, in London, and I can't go home again. And I also understand that a lot of these Muslims can't go home again either because a lot of Western countries have bombed and a lot of other Muslims have moved in. Um, you know, it, it's a one lesson that's learned too late that uh, brutal ideologies require brutal leaders to even hold the pretense of a cohesive country together. And by destroying the brutal leaders of these countries, uh, well, terrifying and terrible things have been loosed upon the world. Now, the question is, does that mean that Europe has to take the refugees? Well, if these conflicts in the Middle East were justified, then of course they don't have to take the refugees because it's war. If the conflicts were not justified, the solution is not to take the refugees because that is making children pay for the choices of the political leaders and those who supported them. Uh, if, um, if the wars were unjust, then they are the international crime of aggression, which is the worst crime internationally that exists, and therefore the leaders need to be put up on war crimes trials. That is the solution. You don't just open the floodgates to economy and society and culture and history destroying waves of third-wave migrants. Uh, you put your own leaders on war crimes trials. Um, that's the only solution because you don't have the right to make the choices for what kind of society your children are going to live in after you're dead. You simply don't have that right. Now, I know that right has been taken with regards to national debt for a long time, that we're willing to sell off our children's body parts to Chinese banksters in order to buy votes in the here and now. But we don't have that right. We don't have that right. Now, we've got some numbers, which we're going to put in a more detailed presentation. But the basic reality is, we say, oh, it's 323,000 net migration last year. 70% um, of recent population growth is foreign immigration. And um, mostly coming, a lot of it is coming from uh, third world countries. 
where there's not a compatible culture, not a compatible religion, not a compatible idea of the relationship between church and state in particular. So when you're getting masses of immigrants from Pakistan, Nigeria, Bangladesh, Nepal, Somalia, this is not going to work out. And England is already twice as crowded as Germany and three and a half times more crowded than France. And this is absolutely unsustainable. And if England cannot get a grip on its borders, and it should be damn easy for England, which is in fact an island, alone among European countries, it has a moat. And there are only 100 generally ports of entry into England, and uh, certainly the economic migrants fleeing from North Africa or leaving North Africa are not exactly going to sail around into the channel. So uh, England has a unique capacity to control its own immigration. And that is something that being part of the EU is going to very seriously undermine. Right? Those who are being accepted in the EU as refugees right now and their families, in a couple of years, they're going to become EU citizens and entitled to free movement to the UK. And this is the three million coming as well. Also, Turkey is trying to join the EU and has been for some time. That's 79 million more people basically Muslims, who can have the perfect right to come live and work in the UK with no border controls. 79 million Muslims, give or take. So, if you want to keep the British way of life, if you want to keep the welfare state, if you want to keep your history, if you want to keep your culture, if you want to keep all the treasures that the blood of your ancestors soaked to provide to you, Well, you have to control your immigration. You have to stop immigration, basically. Here's the thing, too. If you care about Muslims, you need to stop immigration. The Muslims who are coming in right now, a lot of them, and it's not Muslims in particular, it's all of the people who come in and go on welfare, which is the people who don't speak the language, who don't have cultural compatibilities, who don't have work skills. And even if you have work skills, if you can't speak the language, it doesn't do you much good. If you care about Muslims, you need to stop immigration. Give it a couple of generations. See if it works. Give them a chance to assimilate. Find out if they will assimilate. Right Recently, the guy, Trevor Phillips, the guy who invented the term Islamophobia, which is just a nonsense, shut up whitey term, like racism, um, he said, I was completely wrong, they don't integrate. So you have a big experiment whether uh, Muslims are going to integrate when they come in en masse. Now, there are already a lot of Muslims in Europe, a lot of third worlders uh, in, in England. See if it works. Find out. You know, it's one thing to have a drink at dinner. It's another thing to have eight drinks at dinner. If you have 50 drinks at dinner, you're dead. Moderation is the key. Stop immigration. Give it a couple of generations and see if this integration occurs. Now, right now, it's not a good possibility. Second and third generation Muslims tend to be more radicalized than their parents. Now you say, well, these countries in the Middle East have been undermined and destroyed, so what are we going to do with these people? Well, the answer to that is very clear. If you actually have a brain, you resettle them in the Middle East, where there's the same culture, same climate, same language, uh, a lot of the same religions and so on, and it's way cheaper. It's 13 times cheaper to settle someone in the Middle East than to bring them, for instance, to the United States. So if you want to bring 10,000 refugees to the U.S., I don't know what the numbers are for Europe, $128.7 million per year to resettle the 10,000 refugees. For that amount of money, you could resettle 121,797 refugees in neighboring Middle Eastern countries. 
Come on. I mean, and seriously, think about it. If you had to flee France, would you rather go to a French-speaking country with the same cultural history, same religious background, or would you rather go to Saudi Arabia? Because this is the great cruelty to immigrants. Everyone thinks, oh, we're being kind. You're not being kind. You're being sentimental, foolish, self-destructive, and destroying everything that you were handed. You are not being kind. Because you bring Muslims or you bring third world immigrants into your culture, into your country, you surround them with a mode of welfare so they don't have to economically and culturally integrate into the existing society. And because you're bringing so many in, it is a completely economically unsustainable situation. So you're making people dependent on welfare, you're shielding them from having to integrate into the larger society in a situation where the drug money of welfare is going to run out. And then what happens? They're in a foreign country, not integrated, don't speak the language, can't get welfare. It's not kind to them or to you or to those who come after you. It is not kind. It is enabling. It's kind like you give a drug to a drug addict. Oh, he loves you in the moment, but you're destroying him in the long run. Now, another important issue is that the average IQ of Muslim countries or the average Muslim IQ is 81. That's more than a standard deviation below the European white average of 100. And it's actually lower than American blacks, which clock in at 85. Now, some of that is environmental, but not all of it, because in Islam, you're allowed cousin marriages. And in a lot of Islamic countries, that is a significant proportion or even a majority of the marriages. Cousin marriages shaves 10 IQ points off the population as a whole. And therefore, we can see Islam as sort of a brain-destroying virus that spreads through miscegenation. It's a strong way to put it, but biologically, it's fairly incontrovertible. So when people of an I- with an IQ of 81, when they come into IQ 100 societies, they're going to fail. They're going to fail, and they're not going to take ownership of that failure because the less intelligent you are, the more confident you are. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Very unintelligent people tend to be incredibly confident, which means they have to externalize all their failures and blame the dominant culture. That means you, most likely. So you're going to be called a racist either way, even though Islam is not a race. So if you say we've got to stop immigration, give people a chance to integrate, find out how this experiment is going to work out before we continue, well, you're going to be called a racist. But at least you'll have some control over your borders and some possibility of a secure future. If you let all these people in, they're going to fail and you're going to be called a racist anyway. Like there's no way, trust me, there's no way you're not going to be called a racist. It's either now and a controllable situation, or later, when it's an irretrievable disaster. And you can do things. You can ban cousin marriages. You can cut the welfare state. You can just enforce British laws. British laws say, or English laws say, no polygamy. However, Muslims are allowed to bring four wives in, each of which can draw welfare. Come on. People are crying out and saying, well, the leaders will solve the problem. No, the leaders will not solve the problem as it currently stands. Political power is... A drug. It's not like a drug. It is a drug. When you go up in the hierarchy, you get additional dopamine. And when you fall down through the hierarchy, you lose dopamine. Uh, it is, you see this experiment with monkeys all the time. It happens with people. Political power is a drug that is more addictive than cocaine. And third world migrants vote left. And leftist leaders, which are generally in charge in Europe, want to keep their political power. They want their votes. And so they're bringing in the people who give them the drug of dopamine called continuing in political power. So expecting 
drug addicts to solve your problem is like giving your life savings to a coke addict and wondering why it all went up his nose. It's not going to work. You're going to have to talk. You're going to have to lawfully and peacefully protest. You're going to have honest conversations. You have to. Because you don't have the right to sell these freedoms. You simply don't have the right to sell these freedoms. You don't have the right to run up national debts for moral posturing. You have to balance your budgets. You have to cut welfare. You have to ban cousin marriages. You don't have the right to destroy your children's education by diverting massive amounts of resources to people who aren't going to benefit that much from an education because they're IQ 81 on average. And so when it comes to the the Brexit, I'll tell you what the Brexit is. The British exit from the European Union is the raising of a portcullis when the barbarians are coming. You know, you've got a moat around a castle and you've got a bridge across that moat which you raise. It's as simple as that. If you wish to survive, and this doesn't mean culturally, this may even mean physically over time, if you wish to survive, you must break free of the orgy of self-hating, self-destruction that is occurring in the European Union. You need to cut yourself loose from this in the same way that a hysterical, incredibly strong drowning man is pulling you down because he hates himself. You've got to pry him from your hands and you've got to save yourself. Europe, demographically, statistically, is going down. Now, is it too late to turn around in Europe? Nothing is too late before the very end, but right now, the tendency, the direction, the momentum is clear. You must save yourselves. You must take control of your island back from Brussels. They will not help you. They do not care. They are drug addicts trying to get five more minutes of politically correct security from the verbal abuse from the left. That's all they're trying to do. They're not trying to help you. They don't care about you. They care about getting their drug of political power. I'm half Irish, half German, and I grew up in London. And this is is what breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. You know, I mentioned this. The other day, when talking about the London mayor, I said that I can't go home again. I miss the way that London used to be when I was a child. Now, everyone's like, oh, it sucks to be you. It's blowback. Colonialism. Right? Colonialism. Colonialism sucked for the British people. Taxes went up 25% to pay for the empire. And British men were regularly conscripted into the blood slavery of the Navy in particular, but Why the hell should people be punished for that which they were already punished for in the 19th century? Anyway, that doesn't make any sense. Just just to hate hate Whitey, that's all that's going on. Hate Whitey is the war cry of the dependent leeches all back and forth across the world. Because, you know, when you hate white people, they give you resources to avoid the uncomfortableness of being hated. Well, until they don't. But it's funny, you know, and if I was... If I was... um, some Indian guy, and um, white people had taken over my home city to the point where Indians in my home city were fast becoming a minority and the white people were taking over. And I said, uh, I miss the way that my city used to be when it was my people's city. People were like, oh, I understand. That's terrible. There's terrible white people coming in and taking over your city. That's terrible. I, right? But because I'm white, um, well, I must be hated for that, which for any other race would gain sympathy. It's noted, people. It's noted. I'm getting a little fucking tired of it, but it's noted. 
this morning in Germany, a young man shouted Allahu Akbar and then stabbed a bunch of Germans, one of whom has died, in the uh, the buses. It's funny, you know what, makes you sentimental, but a lot of childhood memories of getting on those famous double-decker London buses. And um, now they're going to be plastered with uh, Allah is great by Muslims. It is a shocking and horrifying situation. And those who are not shocked and horrified, I believe, are just soulless, lost, self-hating. I come from a military family. My, The men of my family died by the dozens in wars. And, and, and why? If they could come back from the dead and speak to me, they would say, we did not die for this. We did not fight and struggle for this. And they... They are around me, it feels saying that um, it is still a war of words and still you fail to speak them. The blood sacrifice of our elders which gave us the treasures of everything we had. And you're giving it away because you're scared of words, of meanness, of having a slightly tarnished reputation in the short run. Well, say my elders my ancestors. We had to face shrapnel and mustard gas and bombs, and we stood tall and fought. What do you have to face? That is one percent as bad, and still you will not speak the words that set you free, the words of honesty, the words of cultural pride, the words of love for your children, of protection, of your freedoms. My grandparents stood firm against Hitler's bombs raining down in the glorious summer of 1940. I just mean glorious in terms of weather, but my grandparents stood firm against Hitler's bombs in London. Hitler's bombs could not drive the British people out of London. But this forced diversity has. 600,000 white people have fled London over the last few years. This forced mashing together of incompatibilities and hostilities and ancient hatreds has done to London what Hitler's bombs could not do to London, which is to drive white British people from the city their ancestors built. And we don't have that right. We don't have the right to give it all away. Yeats wrote a poem after the most destructive moment or the most destructive few years in European history, which is the Great War, 1914 to 1918, because that is what triggered the Second World War and that is what triggered communism, which was the 70 million dead. In the exaggerated version of central planning known as communism, which is a few steps up from Brussels, but not that far, Yeats wrote a poem, after the carnage, 
of the First World War. And it is my hope that people will listen to reason and evidence to avoid escalations and conflicts. The conflicts can still be solved by words. But this is what he wrote after the conflict, and this is what I am saying before to avoid. He wrote, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Give up hope. Action alone will save everything we hold dear in this world.